Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are discussing the fifth and final section of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. I'm excited. Let's get to it. The first question I'm going to ask is really a book club type of question, because that's what I do when we finish a story. So I just want to ask you before we really dig into the meat of this last section of the story that we covered, in totem, what do you think of this story? And more importantly, how has your sense of it changed between the last time you read it and now and going through it for this project? Well, as I said, I think in our first episode of Fifth Head, this is a story that I've remembered fondly. This was the story that made me a wolf fan and not just a Book of the New Sun fan. It is still an absolute masterpiece. This prose is intoxicating. This world is so rich. But I think that I was seduced by the intoxicating prose and the richness of the world. And I don't think I appreciated the first time I read this story, you know, 15 years ago. I don't think I appreciated the extent to which this is about characters trapped in hell. That despite all of its richness, this is not a world you would want to go live on. This is not a story you would want to insert yourself into. It's been a real joy to read this slowly, you know, page by page with you and really dig into all of the ways that Wolf is using imagery to hammer that home again and again to us. I agree. I remember reading this story ages ago, and I honestly didn't remember much of the events of the story. I remembered that the main character was a clone, and there was a conflict with the father, and there were parts of it I didn't like, like David's sense of humor I remember not really enjoying. Puns aren't for everybody. Yeah, and the totally forgot the heist scene and the part with the sleeve, and I remember there were parts of the story that left me feeling cold, including the end, the way it wraps up. I totally forgot the prison scene. So I just had a kind of a sense memory of the experience of reading the story, loving it in the beginning, being blown away by it, and then slowly feeling more and more left cold. I had the exact opposite experience reading this story this time. I still love the beginning, but it just got better and better, looking at it closely, reading it closely, pouring over the sections, really seeing what Wolf is doing. And I hope we've done the same thing for our listeners and people reading along, that this story deserves all the attention and more as has been demonstrated by some great scholars of wolf than we've been able to give it. So I hope there are some robust discussions around this story when we get around to getting them up and publishing them. But this story is a masterpiece. Everything fits together incredibly. And we're going to make an attempt here to explain the last line of this story in this episode. So I don't want our listeners to feel like we're avoiding the puzzles either. And we've already started constructing our outline for the big discussion that will be the next episode. And item Roman numeral one on there is puzzles and mysteries. Yeah, I honestly can't wait for that discussion. But let's dig into this section. I think we've done a lot of the heavy lifting with the close reading in the past. A lot of things we've talked about have been confirmed in this section or at least explained. But there are things in this section that I that I do think are raised that we ought to discuss. And it is going to be a little bit more of a book club type discussion than the close reading discussion, because I think we've covered a lot, as I said already. The first question then that I have for you, Glenn, for discussion is, what do you make of the scene with Dr. Marsh before the murder of the father? Mainly, do you understand what's going on with the extended metaphor regarding relaxation. For me, I think this is just Wolf being an engineer and 
trying to explain something about engineering to a general audience. The gist of it for me is that we're supposed to get the sense that the ship is stalled because the people in this line have stalled the ship and for no other reason. The reason for the ship being stopped has been forgotten, and now they keep it stopped. It can be no other way. I think that that's what this testing has resulted in that this identical recreation of the past person and persona means that there can be no forward momentum. I want to know if you have a different understanding or a deeper understanding of this technique or what the metaphor is doing in this part of the story. Right. I don't know very much about the history of cloning as an idea, either in science or in speculative fiction. But this all to me seems like it's addressing a concern that Wolf thinks a reader will have, or at least might have, which is to say that cloning is just about replicating DNA. It's not about creating the same person again, because who we are as people is shaped at least in part by nurture. It's not 100% nature. And I think that that's what Dr. Marsh is doing here. He's the voice of Wolf who is answering that objection by saying, yes, that is true. Nurture is an important part of who we are, but you don't have to replicate the nurture precisely, which would be an impossible thing to do. You only have to approximate it, and you only even have to approximate it for so long. And during a period of the creature's life, when you can control all of the variables in its nurture, where it has no ability to alter those things itself. And that if you can do that, if you can approximate the nurture that you had, you can, in fact, make a personality that is nearly indistinguishable from your own. I think I still object, but that's what the relaxation is there for. It's to meet this objection that readers are going to have when this plot is being explained to us. Yeah, I think that's a great breakdown of what's going on there. I'm still left with the question of whether or not there's some sort of genetic destiny or fate. And I think it's a question we're going to raise in a little bit uh, when we talk about what is going on at the end of this story. But for me, there's some kind of awful fate. I want us to really think about the dream and what the distinct pieces of the dream are. I think the sails are obviously time in some way. The ship itself, the vessel, might be the whole family line because it contains Mr. Million and Aunt Janine, and it's a huge vessel, and the narrator doesn't know what he's doing there. But we do know that the father has stopped the ship, and the ship is out in space. There's so much going on, and the ship is the whole family line that is stopped. And the father has to be killed in Aunt Janine's mind because he is stopping the progress from taking place because he's continuing this awful experimentation that she sees from the outside only being half of a clone. So I don't know if that explained it, but these half beings, this kind of transition into my next question is, what do we make of these half clones, these half biological half clones, the half Abo, the half human, the half person represented in these robots? What is going on with all of these revelations at the end of this story? And how do you think it relates to maybe some of the themes of the story? I don't know that I've really got a, a good answer to that question, but I will just observe that the imagery that we get of you know, numbers, I guess, in the story is binaries, right? These couples, two opposites having something to do with each other, or things are halves. We don't really see like whole or 
solitary individuals in this story. That We don't seem to get that. So everything is either one half or it is two. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is actually even in the description of the prostitutes as demi-mondanes. This is all over the place. There is not a whole person. And in fact, maybe this explains some of what's going on with meeting Phaedria with a broken leg. She is not whole. The only whole person we kind of get is Mary Doll. Right. And as you pointed out, she never speaks. We don't get any lines from her. She has no agency in the story at all, but she's the only whole person. I don't know if if something's going on there, but perhaps it is. I'll have to think about that and we can maybe pick that up in our next episode. Yeah, for sure. I think for me, some of these realizations, particularly about David and Janine, are meant to put David and Janine in another sort of binary. Janine is stuck in the house for reasons of her own handicap. And we're not sure why she is handicapped. If it's a genetic problem, the result of either the cloning or her own mother's side of the family. But it gives her a special perspective. She is the control subject in the same way that I think David is. We can read them as being similar in that way. And we're meant to draw them together. And so that leads me to the question, if she is this outsider who was a control subject generations ago, two generations at least in the past, it leads me to a question about Vale's hypothesis. And this is kind of why what I referenced in the recap jumped out at me is whether or not the story about the Abos taking over being atrophied is actually about the Abos and not just about this family as Dr. Marsh sort of perceives. In other words, is Vale's hypothesis a genuine hypothesis about the Abos or is it something more thematically fit in with the story we're told in just this novella? The underlying question of Vale's hypothesis is, how do you know you are who you think you are? Can you know that you are who you think you are? It's a real epistemological question. And she has this question on an abstract level because she has grown up and lives in now a family environment in which people are through a cycle of abuse, are attempting to make copies of their own personalities in copies of their own bodies. This question of, is the narrator identically the same person as his father? Was that person identical to the figure he regarded as his father? And so on, all the way back to Mr. Million. This is a question that is on her mind because of the environment that she's growing up in. That's the the root of this question. So even if her question really is about the abos, the insight comes entirely from her own experiences in a household where you don't know who you are and you don't know who anyone else is either. Yeah, you're sort of prohibited from finding out because the goal of these experiments is to dissolve the self, to become the same, and maybe, as I've suggested, uncover the genetic history through this wild drug experimentation. One thing we didn't point out in the recap is that Dr. Marsh says it would be just as valid for the son to be experimenting on the father in order to get the information that they're seeking, in order for that self to be identified of the self, at least if Dr. Marsh's uh, like relaxation theory is true. And I think you brought this up with the pronouns at the end, that there is some play with the sense of self going on here as well. Right. When he says that he's writing because he knows that sometime he is going to read what he's writing now, I don't think he means the physical self that he is right now. He means a clone of himself. That's what he means. He means that 20 years, 30, 40 years from now, a cloned individual, an identical person to him is going to find this journal 
in the library where all the books are written by someone with his name, but probably not the same biological entity. And that person is going to have this account as part of the evidence that he can use to solve this problem, uh, this question of who am I? Why are we stuck? Let me just ask you about that question. What do you make of it? What do you make of it as a motivation for these characters? Why can't they stop asking this question and take new action? Why are they repeating this endlessly? I don't even understand what these experiments are about. These questions are so vague as to not even be questions. It all strikes me as not just a tautology, as you pointed out, but as empty rhetorical justification for heinous acts you're taking because you get some kind of perverse joy or satisfaction from abusing kids. There's not a real question that we get in that monologue. Why are we stuck this way? Well, okay, define your terms. He never defines those terms. I mean, if this was a talk I heard in an academic conference, I would have a page of questions that I would want to press him to define his terms, to get more specific. What precisely is it that you're actually trying to find out? He doesn't know. The only real hint that we get is that he seems to feel like he deserves to be more than the manager of the best brothel in Port Mimizan, or perhaps even on St. Croix. He seems to feel like he should be running this colony because he's a smart person who's able to do all of these you know, crazy scientific experiments and run an amazing business, that that should translate into political power and fame. But the objection that I have to that immediately is, well, you're not trying to do that. What if instead of running a brothel and abusing your son, you actually just tried to run for office or something? Right. Why aren't you taking new action? I mean, that's the core question I have as well. But it did occur to me as you were speaking that this cycle of abuse demands justification. And this tautology, and you connected the tautology with a cycle of abuse, really requires the the next in line to say what type of person could do this. How could this have been done? And in order to justify how it could have been done, they must determine why the question is being asked. And the only way they can think of doing that is by experimenting in the same way they were experimented on. And this is because they don't know what they said during those experiments. And it doesn't seem to be in the notebooks. Nobody's really keeping a history of this. It makes me question whether or not the library is really full of books written by the generations of these people. Because the first thing you would do is start at the beginning and start reading these notebooks. But these don't seem like patient, decent people. So they might get tired after reading like three years of notebooks and say, you know, it would be better. What if we just create a clone and I could ask him the questions that were asked of me and I could experience it as the observer rather than as the observed. And it's just this sickness and rot that cannot be escaped because they need to know why The questions were being asked, and the only way they can find out is to ask the questions themselves, because on some level they realize they were the ones asking the questions to themselves. Well, there are a number of really awesome observations that you just had there, Brandon. I mean, for for one, right, you've really identified what the question actually is, which is not why are we stuck here? It's why did this happen to me? Why was I victimized? Why was I abused? Well, I better do it to someone else so I can find out 
Why? Why the person who did this to me did it in the first place? And that's a really great observation. But I also like that you've brought into it this need to understand what the purpose was. What were the questions that were asked to me? What were the answers that the questioner was looking for? The only way to find out, right, is is to flip it around, is to flip my role in the equation, to go from abused to abuser. But ultimately, I don't think anyone is finding out anything that is about themselves, that is really answering this question. I mean, and this is really this metaphor of the ship right, that we get in this dream is the perfect metaphor for what is happening here. Yeah, it's incredible what, what Wolf is doing here by even having Aunt Janine be the one who recognizes that the father has to die. She has seen this happen. She knows what's happening. Maybe she's seen him create 50 of these clones and that she's clearly the one who suggests that the father has to die. We're told in the story that it kind of arises naturally as they're talking, but in the dream, it's Aunt Janine who knows that the father has to die and knows that these experiments are pointless as a scientist herself, the outsider, sees clearly in this instance. The next question that I want to ask is, who is telling us the story? Not the name, but what type of person is the narrator? What is revealed to us that he wishes to reveal to himself? What's great about this story and the narrator himself is that he is writing this story down in the moment where he is on the cusp of fully becoming his father, that he is writing up the story of how he got to this point, writing it up maybe for himself to read in 10 years, maybe for this child who's been brought into the room to read in 20 years. That's not clear, but he is right on the border right now of having this choice of there is this child that I have created, a clone who has just come into my laboratory I have a choice to continue this cycle of abuse, to continue these experiments, or I cannot do that. It's clear that he's choosing to continue it, although we don't see him make the choice. That seems to be what's what's going on. So I think that there's a sense in which this account is being written, perhaps partially as justification for the decision that he's already made, as apology, as defense for it, but also perhaps to give himself the courage to go through with the choice that he's already made, much like we see him becoming viscerally aware of the scalpel in the laboratory when he's screwing himself up to kill his father. Yeah, this narrator is a terrible person (laughs) by all accounts. This is, I think, I mean, we brought up Lolita earlier in our recap of this story, maybe two episodes ago. And this is another story in that very small group of stories where the narrator is objectively evil and uses beautiful prose and strong sense of their own psychology to justify and hide their evilness from the reader. And it's meant to show us as readers that we fall for how easy it is to sympathize with evil if it's covered up in certain ways, like the flowers in the laboratory, right? So I, I think this narrator is just a, just a terrible human being. For me, like I said, the lines with Phaedria really cement it at the end where she's turned into a punchline after we're given much of our narrator's early love for her. Who can forget that type of love unless it's turned sour? And what type of person, when love has turned sour in that way, would punish another person? It's just rotten. Marydoll, who he loves, who 
was his consolation. His thought of consolation in the camp is sold into slavery, and he does nothing to find her. That could be because he is aware of his own evil and doesn't want her to be a part of it. And then we have this line that says, well, you know, opening the brothel was easy. All I had to do was introduce people. People were already coming because they expected the brothel to be open. And so it was just easy. I just introduced Johns to prostitutes. The sense that we get earlier where the father just says, someday you'll need money to run your experiments and blah, blah, blah. And that's your focus and all this stuff. Don't worry about it. That is exactly what he's doing. He can't change his behavior. Yeah, the narrator's a rotten person. You'll get no argument from me on that note. Well, I just, in that long bit of rambling, told you what I think kind of happens to Mary Doll, or at least why the narrator doesn't go after her. We also have another character that we don't really know what happens to apart from their flight to the capital. It's David. What happens to David in your mind? Yeah, I love what we learn about David, that he's going to the capital. And the last thing that we saw David doing was talking about what he would be able to do with the wealth they would inherit from their father. Even without that wealth, he doesn't get that money if there was ever any money to begin with. He goes to the capital. And I believe that his goal there is to insert himself into the politics of Saint Croix. And what I find really interesting here is that David is escaping the cycle of violence, is taking new action, and is going out and actually doing the thing that the father in his villainous monologue is angry that none of the clones ever go and do. That the son that you're not experimenting on or the son that you haven't cloned, that you haven't rendered completely identical, is in fact the one who can go do the thing that you wish that you yourself had been able to do. I think that's maybe the answer to the question, in fact, right? David is the answer. Yeah, I agree 100%. David is the answer to the question. David is the anchor lifting from the ship. He is still of this family line, but he's not been subjected to the same experimentation. He's not been made identical. I do think he is the biological child of the father, even though we get that kind of puzzling. There was no evidence found that he was related to the family. Whether it's nature or nurture, he is a member of this household in a significant way. Yeah, absolutely. And something I do want to point out is that we are told explicitly that part of the creation of the narrator as an identical clone, the manipulation of the nurture part of his identity is that Mr. Million encourages the narrator to get very much into science, while David is left free to really get into classical literature, Latin poetry, Euripides. So I just want to point out that the the answer to the cycle of abuse is an education in the humanities. Yeah, absolutely. He loves languages, the law, the liberal arts. We get all of that from David, and he's free to pursue it. And he's subjected to much less abuse than his brother. It's clear that David is the answer to breaking the chain of this family. He is the promised child, the hoped for child that nobody in this chain of clones can become because they are focused on their trauma. They can't break free of their trauma, and they need to repeat the trauma, as we discussed, in order to understand why it happened in the first place. They are stuck in time. It is trauma being a a real swamp of time. And we've seen Wolf use this technique. Other science fiction writers use it a lot. Kurt Vonnegut in Slaughterhouse-Five, that trauma displaces people from their timeline. And this is our narrator's 
biggest fear as well. And I was a little flipped there in my explanation of that. But but I do think that there is something here that Wolf is doing where he is showing us that we have these characters, these clones for generations who are asking this real fundamental question of who am I? Why am I the way that I am? Who are we all? What does it mean to be a person? And the person with the better answer in this binary of these two brothers is the one who loves poetry. This is Wolf saying, if you want to know what it means to be human, maybe don't try to graft more arms onto a person. You might try reading a novel. You might try learning empathy, right? And this is one of the things that we know about the psychology of education is that engaging in literature, especially reading, is something that promotes empathy better than just about anything else. And empathy is the thing that the narrator is missing. And presumably his father and his father before him, they never developed this empathy. This is why they can do this to mice. This is why they can do this to monkeys. This is why they can do this to other people. While the son who loves literature and poetry has learned to empathize. He has become fully human and he has taken new action and he has gone off to insert himself into the community of the planet of San Qua. While the brother who ignored that part of his education is stuck in the basement continuing the experiments. He's stuck in the hold of the ship while David is up in the sails. I think that's an excellent point. And it really speaks to the need for a whole education. The answer, who am I, is not found in the viscera of the body as we have this bronze viscera early on in the story, which is the narrator's kind of a memorial to his childhood. Well, David's is these panpipes. It's not found in the gray matter of the brain and, and the ability to manipulate that to see what comes out. It is found in the ability to be a member of the human community. And this family, not only through their cloning practices, but also through their choice of profession and the way even their house is designed, have totally isolated themselves from the community of other human beings. And this is the reason why I think the abos in this story, the wolf takes that and runs with it for the next two novellas, are meant to be a thematic parallel to what is happening in this atrophied, frail, and stuck family that have the same questions that Vale's hypothesis asks. Before we move on, I want to jump on something that you said earlier about the other character who we don't meet again at the end of the story, and that's Mary Dahl. And you very shrewdly, very astutely pointed out that he makes no effort, or at least tells us that he makes no effort to find her and buy her and then free her, which is an action that we saw him considering with the sweeper slave in the slave market. I think that this is telling about his attitudes about slavery, its relationship to our nature as people. And I think that his decision not to try to redeem Mary Doll, I think can actually inform that disgust that he feels at the sweeper and the slave market. I think actually that He's disgusted by the fact that this sweeper is servile in his very nature. Not that he's been made legally a slave, but has inside of him an imperiousness, uh, a hawkishness, a wolfishness that the narrator thinks is 
the core of their identity, that is the core of their nature. His nature, his father's nature, the nature of all of them, back to Mr. Million, is that they're the predators, not the prey. And he is disgusted when he sees that this person, despite having that biological heritage, has the nature of prey. I think that this is why he doesn't look for a Mary doll either. And I think that this has also to do with this real gross comment that he has about Phaedria as well. I think that he is making this Aristotelian argument about why people are are slaves. You know that someone is a weak-willed, bad, inferior person by the very fact that he or she has become a slave because no strong-willed, superior person would have allowed such a thing to happen to them in the first place. And we saw in Wolf's story that was explicitly about slavery, how the whip came back, that Wolf knows the classical literature about slavery, right? Because he quotes Vero, the Roman writer about farming. He quotes Vero on slaves in that story. So I, I think that Wolf is showing us here through this pairing, this binary, that the narrator has an Aristotelian view on slavery, right? That if you are a slave, it's because there's something wrong with you. That's an excellent point. I want to complicate it a little bit by adding the psychological element that if the narrator needs to believe that he is the wolf that eats the she-wolf's young here, right? That that his line is predatory and strong-willed and alpha in this sense, that the disgust he feels, again, is this reflection, the recognition of the weakness he felt as a child, his inability to have any agency in his environment and his looking forward to being free to be a predator. Not just free, but free to prey. And when he thinks about freeing the slave, it's not just the Aristotelian argument, the slave that looks like him. It's that he doesn't want maybe competition then, is is, is the way I'd complicate it. I do see the, the kind of Aristotelian argument here that there's also a justification on the rational level. But I still don't know that that's why he wouldn't try to free Mary doll. I think, again, he's afraid of what he would see in himself if he freed someone who he believed to be good. Yeah, you make a great point there that when he's observing the sweeper, the disgust is perhaps also shame because he also is a victim but doesn't want to feel like he's a victim. And I think it's important that this immediately precedes the decision to reclaim his own agency and in fact to become the predator it happens immediately after he sees this servile person with his same face right this is all built into it i I think that shame at having been abused might really inform a lot of these actions including not wanting to get married all so because he as you say he doesn't want her to see who he's become Yeah, in a real sense, this is the story of the island of Dr. Death and other stories without ransom. It's only Dr. Black that is his guide through this world. And so it's just doubly heartbreaking as a result, though I don't think I feel too much sympathy at the end of this story for the character who has chosen to become evil. But has he? That's kind of the big question I think we're going to discuss in the wrap-up episode. Does he have any agency at all. But before we get there, we have to talk about the last sentence of the story. Someday they'll want us. I have a ton of notes on this, but I want to ask you first, this is probably meant to inform the meaning of the whole story. What does it mean? <laughs> yeah, it's it's the big question here. 
who even are the pronouns referring to here? Who's the they? Who's the us? And maybe that's that's where I'll start. And this harkens back to what his father said on the night that he murdered him. When his father said, after how many generations, we do not achieve fame or the rule of even this miserable little colony planet. Something must be changed but what, right? The, the, something must be changed so that we can achieve fame or at least achieve the rule of this miserable little colony planet. I do think that's one of the things that he's invoking here, right? Someday, the people of this planet, perhaps all of humanity, will recognize how awesome we are. And the we, who is the we, who is the us, is this line of clones. At least that's that's what I think is one of the things anyway that's going on here. But you said you had a lot of notes, so I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. I agree with what you're saying, very much so. The us, I think, is meant to refer to him and the child that has entered the room as he's closing out the sentence. Is the immediate presence of that child that has him close out this story. The us also, to me, means that he is rejecting Dr. Marsh's description, that they are the same identity. I think he's wrong. I think he should have heeded Dr. Marsh's warning a little bit because he is recreating the exact same conditions under which he was made. I also want to point out the irony of this phrase, given your reading and mine as well, that the they refers to the people of Port Mimizan. Why can't they be rulers? You know, if that reading is right, it indicates that he has adapted the same attitude towards these awful citizens of this place that his father has, and in a sense has become his father. We see that, I think, with the monkey, the ape symbol being put on him as well. And we even see a slip of language when he's with his father in the study with Dr. Marsh. He refers to the monkey, as it was in the past now, as the as the ape. So we're seeing this real change take place. But let me read something from page 12 of this edition, something early on in the story that is worth revisiting. And this is when he's reflecting on his father. He says that the boys were led to believe that their father cared nothing for us at all. Whether this was true or not, I cannot say. Certainly, I believed it. And my father never gave me the least reason to doubt it, though at the time, the thought of killing him had never occurred to me. And if these reasons were not sufficiently convincing... Anyone with an understanding of the stratum in which he had become perhaps the most permanent feature would realize that for him, who was already forced to give large bribes to the secret police, to once disgorge money in that way would leave him open to a thousand ruinous attacks. And this may have been, this and the fear in which he was held, the real reason we were never stolen. So he's talking about the them being kidnapped. But we have this sense that the father is a permanent fixture in society, and that his position in the stratosphere actually can't be changed because he's a major part of the graft and vice and underworld in Port Mimizan. And he's also permanent in the sense that generations of him continue to do this. And that, in fact, it won't benefit either the father or the son or this chain of clones or society for them to break out. This someday they'll want us means that the whole society would have to change to embrace them as other than what they mean to the society. So I think there's a bit of irony at play there as well. Yeah, that's a great callback because he does have, in fact, fame and wealth. And through that wealth and also through the position, some influence, if not actual power. 
the people who are coming as customers to this brothel are the wealthy elite of Port Mimizan. This is not soldiers on leave with their meager pay. These are not sailors who come into port. This is the elite. This is Phidria's father. This is the mayor of Port Mimizan. It's uh, important figures of the colony government when they're in Port Mimizan for some reason. Those are the people who are the customers at this brothel. Their father, and, and now the narrator as the new person in this position, has relationships with these people, has some kind of influence, perhaps even some kind of power. What he really seems maybe to actually want is respect more than power and influence and wealth, which are things that he seemingly already has anyway. Or even affirmation. I think someday they'll want us is cut off too soon. Someday they'll want us for who we are, not for who we pretend to be. This is is the Apo argument as well. Someday they'll want us for who we are means they'll recognize my contributions to science, my ability to lead. They'll recognize what I've done for the society and creating these slaves and entertainment and all this stuff. That sentence ends too soon and indicates that he knows who he is and how he wants to be recognized, but he can never be wanted for that. And this actually also speaks to his trauma as a child. The shame of that trauma means he won't be recognized or fears being known for who he is, but will only be known as the masks he wears. The narrator recounts a conversation that he has with his father. This is the conversation in which the father says, you're going to have to learn the brothel business because that's the only way you can fund the science. He has some comments there about how science is not a profitable thing you can do on St. Croix. Then really just a few pages later in this story, we get Dr. Marsh, who claims to have been offered an exorbitant salary to be a professor at a university here on St. Croix, why can't the narrator or the narrator's father or his father before him become a professor of biology at this university instead of a brothel owner? Yes, that is the question they are trying to answer. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Why can't we leave this business? They are evil. That's the reason. They like the money. They're okay owning slaves. They're basically, on some level, sociopaths who who don't empathize, actually, with others. And the reason why they can't leave is because they enjoy their, their freedom to pray. So anybody who's identical to this won't be able to get out of it. And it's the tragedy of this story. And I don't know, maybe the hope that is actually found in David, that though he's part of this, though he was conditioned similarly, the lack of attention he was paid allows him to be free. And Janine is another odd example. Maybe she is the she-wolf who is trying to protect her young from the wolf because the wolf eats her young. She's the madame. She is the mother of the house. So, you know, once again, this imagery from Rhyme of the Ancient Mariners just coming back into play again and again. And we also see that there is industry. The device she has to get around is invented by scientists who have an understanding of the human body, of what it would mean to sit in a saddle and hover above the ground. There are contradictions all over the place that the pride of this family cannot recognize how society needs them. And because they are trapped in hell, they can never change. We made a really big deal of pointing out all of the parallel 
attributes of our character David with the biblical King David. We pointed out his musical characteristics. We pointed out his ruddiness. I'm not sure that we ever really pointed out, though, that the the biblical King David is a shepherd, that he protects his flock from wolves and lions and predators. I can only hope that there is perhaps an optimistic outcome to this story, that there is an optimistic outcome to David making it to the capital, to David in becoming important in the government of St. Croix, that perhaps he can come into that role as he who protects people from wolves. That's my reading. (laughs) That's the only hope in this story that exists. Well, on that note, that note of hope. I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. You can also get access to a dozen or so bonus episodes by becoming a patron on Patreon. And Brandon, we're shortly going to be re- recording one of our monthly bonus episodes. And it's uh, your turn to pick. Uh, what have you chosen for us? I have chosen a contemporary science fiction fantasy story by Ken Liu. Um, It is the title story of his collection, The Paper Menagerie, that we're going to be reading. I think it can also be found online for free. I believe it was published in io9 or something like that. Um, So it should be easily accessible. And it's already available for you to listen to for just a dollar a month. Yeah, because we live in the future. (laughs) And we should say that 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 story won the Hugo, the Nebula, and I think also the World Fantasy Award, right? And it's the only story that's ever done that. I was really excited when you said this is the one that you wanted to do. I'm really looking forward to reading it and, of course, to discussing it with you. I really can't wait. I'm excited to dig into this story and the whole short story collection. It's a great deal. And Ken Liu, for those who don't know, has a pretty robust uh, publishing career on his own, but he also translated the three-body problem and, and the, well, two books of that trilogy by Six and Liu. That was a huge hit. Barack Obama endorsed it during his presidency. So I hope you'll read along with us. But for now, head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this section of the story, how we wrapped it up. What did the ending mean to you? How did you make sense of the end of this story of relaxation as a theory. I need to know more about that. I hope somebody can explain it better to me than bad technical dictionaries that engineers wrote for the internet. Um, Because I think I have the gist of it, but the actual technical meaning does interest me. And next time, as uh, I think I've said a thousand times in this episode, we're going to wrap up the novella with a broad discussion of themes and motifs, the puzzles, the mysteries. I think we're also going to really dig in on Wolf's craft. We both agree that this is a masterpiece, and I think we're going to talk about what makes it a masterpiece. And the episode after that is going to feature the return visit of Wolf scholar Mark Aramini in a conversation about this novella, which I'm very, very excited for. But until then... We greet you and say farewell. <laughs>